you actually will come across stronger to the people you're leading if you show that you don't have all the answers. As long as, as long as they know you're putting in the work and that you know what you're talking about, because what we're doing is, is more art than science. You know, this is, it's a basketball game. Welcome to View from the Top, the podcast. That was Steve Kerr, head coach of the Golden State Warriors. Steve visited the Stanford Graduate School of Business as part of View from the Top, a speaker series where students like me sit down to interview leaders from around the world. I'm Rustam Birdi, an MBA student of the class of 2022. This year, I had the pleasure of interviewing Steve on campus in Palo Alto. Steve shared with us the importance of authenticity when leading teams, of ensuring work-life balance and mindfulness in our daily lives, and why proximity matters when trying to address difficult topics impacting our community. You're listening to View from the Top, the podcast. Hi. <laughs> How does it We've feel? We've been hanging out for like 20 minutes, but it's like... Still awkward, right? Um, <laughs> How does it feel to be back in front of everyone you're not on Zoom anymore? Yeah, it feels nice. You know, we had a game last night in Portland, and, and it was the first time, really, that we felt a full, full house um, with fans. We had, uh, last year, at the end of the season, we had some fans back in the building, but not a full house. And last night, you could just feel the energy. It was like everybody was yeah. so excited just to have some semblance of normalcy. So totally. this feels good too. It's good to be back with, with people. Yeah, hopefully we recreate that energy here tonight um, during this talk. Uh, <laughs> before we dive into the interview, wanted to share, if you do want to show us the bottom half of your face, you have two options. Um, stay hydrated, so lots of water. Okay. Or option two, we've been told, is if this was a performance, and actually remove your mask. If you want to shoot some three-pointers for us, um, let us know. So I could actually remove this if I perform. Absolutely. I, if you shoot your career percentage tonight, then you can absolutely remove that, yeah. Anyway, um, let's dive in, in all seriousness. So the mask stays or goes? Which one? Um, <laughs> I don't see a ball, I don't see yeah, a hoop. Do we have a basketball in the crowd over here somewhere? Like a juggle, maybe? A juggle, maybe. Any other performance would also do, I don't yeah. think I really know how to do anything else, actually. You don't, we don't want you to put us to shame, to be honest. I think that's the real <laughs> reason we don't have a basketball here. Um, but thank you for being here at the GSB. Thank We're you. super excited. Um, we think we have a lot to learn from you. Uh, not just Steve Kerr, the player, the general manager, the head coach, but also the podcast host, the social commentator. So you want to dive in. Um, let's perhaps start with leadership. How would you describe your style of leadership in your own words? I think um, I lead my team a little bit like I raised my children. Um, my wife and I did that together, and, and we always uh, sort of gave them a lot of rope, but um, they kind of knew they, they, they were responsible for that freedom. And so I believe in the same kind of leadership with the team. You, you can tell by the way we play. We, you know, we're pretty fast-paced. We're risky. We shoot a lot of crazy shots, especially Steph and Clay. <laughs> um, but I believe um, that the the freedom that they have makes them play more instinctively, and that ultimately, when you're coaching a basketball team, the players it's their team. Um, and so you, you, you have to give them the team, but give, give them the blueprint for how it's all going to work. Right. And once, once the, the culture is set and the idea is set about you know, what we're trying to accomplish, you kind of let them go and then you just rein them in when you feel like you need to rein them in. Right. So I would, I would say that's, that's kind of my style. That's your style. I heard freedom, I heard rest, but I also heard children. And I want to... <laughs> I want to touch on that. Um, where does that come from? And I'm, and I'm curious if this is from your own time as a child and your upbringing. Um, where does that style you just described to us, um, where did you find that? Uh, probably my own parents. Um, I was kind of a um, strange kid, to be <laughs> honest with you. I was um, super competitive 
um, at a very young age to the point where it was, it was, it was actually kind of embarrassing for the family. <laughs> and I, I, I say that only half jokingly, but. Give us an example, what was the embarrassing part? So like when you have a family Easter egg hunt and, <laughs> and I don't find the, the big, pro, you know, the golden egg mm -hmm. and throw a complete tantrum at the age mm. of five because I didn't find the golden egg, that's <laughs> kind of embarrassing for the parents. <laughs> We call that competitive at the GSB, but yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that's, but that was kind of, for whatever reason, that was the way I was wired and, and um, it carried over to sports. And um, so I, I, I think my parents were really interesting. They gave me a lot of rope and they knew, they somehow they knew like when they'd go to my baseball games, by, by the way, back then parents didn't go to every single game, you know, they just... Like if it was a Thursday, there's no way mom and dad were going. You know, it's like they might go on Saturday. It was a little different back then. Hi, Tara. Uh, <laughs> um, so sometimes I'd throw a complete fit. You know, if I got out or you know in baseball or you know missed a bunch of shots and whatever, I would just throw a complete tantrum. And my parents didn't really say anything until later. Like you know, at dinner time. They, mm -hmm. So they somehow they instinct, instinctively knew, just wait until um, I had cooled off a little bit. Right. And, um, and I think it was pretty powerful because by that time you, by the time you cool off, it's a lot easier to see what you've actually done. Right. So I had to learn how to kind of tame that competitiveness and channel it in the right direction. And I think my parents really helped me do that. And so I think that, probably is in some way, maybe subconsciously, um, kind of the way I, I, I guide my own team. Right. I want to touch more um, on your upbringing and your parents. You were born in Beirut. Um, your father, Malcolm, was also born in Beirut. I, there's a lot of movement between Lebanon and Egypt, other Mediterranean countries, and then Los Angeles, where your father was a professor. Not many uh, players or GMs or head coaches have that experience at that age or that point of their career. How did that exposure to that international culture impact you and kind of shape not just your leadership style but your worldview uh, moving forward? Yeah, it was probably the, the, the best education I received as, as a, a child growing up was living overseas. You know, we lived in, I was born in Beirut, as you mentioned. I lived in Cairo, Egypt for about three years when my dad was a visiting professor at the American University there. And we spent time in France and, and Tunisia. And, and so I, I had a, a really good experience in terms of just seeing other cultures and living in other cultures, um, you know, abject poverty and seeing um, how wonderful the people were and, and yet how little so many of them had. And when you're 10, 12 years old, that's really powerful, you know, especially coming from Los Angeles where we were, you know, my dad was a professor at UCLA and we spent a lot of time on campus and it's kind of this idyllic um, scene just like here in Stanford. And, and uh, so the contrast and the, it's great perspective for a young person to, to feel that at a young age. And then I think, you, you know, naturally sort of you build some empathy, but perspective and and I try to introduce perspective with our team as often as I can that's something Greg Popovich was amazing with um, in San Antonio and um, I think it's really crucial just for all of our players to understand how lucky we are to compete and play basketball for a living and and be able to come into the gym every day and be together and it's so much fun and and you know most of the world is trying to get by, so we're, we're really incredibly blessed. Yeah. Are there specific stories from that childhood, the time in Cairo, seeing the abject poverty that come to mind that I've stuck with you that you perhaps have shared with players or colleagues or your staff that you've, that you've held on to? There's a, um, an area in Cairo called the City of the Dead, and it's, um, when I was there, this was in you know, the early, late 70s, early 80s, um, there were like a million people who lived basically in a, in a cemetery underneath um, these, these, uh, the cemetery area. Mm. Obviously a, a pretty brutal 
the you know, nickname for for the the place. But I remember driving by it and and asking, you know, why is it called the City of the Dead? Well, it's you know, there's this is a burial ground, and a lot of people are are you know um, living here because this is the only space they have. And it's like, how do you how do you reconcile that with you know life in Pacific Palisades, going to UCLA basketball games and thinking, you know, the world was a pretty easy place to be. And so I think that all, that all really stuck with me forever. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I feel like the way you shared that and that emotion, it's, it's still very alive with you and you carry that on. You mentioned Brett Popovich as well. Um, one of, you know, in my opinion, at least personally, and I'm sure you'll agree, the, the best leaders out there, and not just coach, but leader in mm. the NBA. You've worked with him. You've also worked with Phil Jackson at the Bulls. When you talk about leadership styles, anything you found from either of those two that, you, that you've hung on and you would like to embody yourself um, with your team? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, almost everything that I do is um, a reflection of either Phil or Pop or Lute Olson. Um, but the thing that I really learned as I went is that if you're not authentic to yourself, your players are going to feel that right away. So while the influence is there from all of those guys and um, definitely a lot of the basketball drill work and the, the philosophy comes from the people I learned, uh, you know, playing under, it still has to be my, my own values that I share with the team every day because that's going to be authentic and they'll feel that authenticity. Um, you know, they, they, I, I was really dealt an amazing hand when I got here because um, most first-time coaches take over bad teams, you know, <laughs> and we already had a good team. But the, the opportunity to coach Steph Curry, and I, I, could, I could go on with a number of players right. in this conversation, but Steph in particular, because I think we share two really um, crucial values that define our whole team, and that is joy and competitiveness. Um, Steph is a, just a vicious competitor, but you wouldn't know it um, because he, of the way he looks and the joy that he plays with. Um, but we see, we see the world in a similar way. You know, we've, we understand the power of, of competing for something, but the power of joy within that. And, and so finding that balance every day is kind of the key to, to what makes our team tick. But to be able to coach someone who shares your values like that is uh, just an incredible um, asset for a coach, um, for a leader, and to have somebody like Steph, who's, who's so strong in terms of his own leadership, um, it's, uh, I've been just incredibly blessed. Right. I want to, you touched on Steph, and I want to maybe dive deeper into a part of leadership, um, and that's people management. Um, like a lot of us here at the GSB, we'll graduate, enter jobs where we perhaps have to manage our direct reports and, you know, those beneath us in the org chart, as well as upwards towards our managers, our bosses, and so on. You've had a similar experience. You have to manage GM, president yeah. operations, owners, as well as your own staff, players, and so on. How do you, like, what framework do you use? Or what's your mental model when thinking about you know, leveraging authority both upwards, downwards, and, you know, sideways. I think, uh, I think just being aware of everybody's challenges and, and, um, and, tr and trying to remind yourself on a daily basis that every single person in the organization has uh, challenges, uh, vulnerabilities, um, strengths, weaknesses. We're all trying for the same thing, but it's very natural for there to be blame. You know, the, the, uh, the front office might sign a player and it doesn't turn out. You know, maybe, maybe they draft a player and they don't think we're developing the player well, or maybe our coaches are thinking, well, we should have drafted somebody. Like, all that stuff. There's, there's the potential for that every single day, just like in any business, right? right. There's so many people. When you get so many people involved, it, there's... there's potential conflict. So I just try to think of, and, and I obviously depending on what's going on with the team, I just try to think each day of, you know, who do I need to check in with and um, 
maybe it's just a phone call or an email, but, but maintaining those lines of communication constantly is, right. you know, like you said, managing in every direction. It's, yeah. um, it's really crucial yeah. and it's a big part of the job. Right. You mentioned communication there, and I want to maybe touch on that a little bit more. Um, this is specifically around creating a, a culture that is both diverse and inclusive. So we, you, we hear that a lot. I want to focus more on the inclusive part, which is not just having a diverse set of individuals on the team, but making them feel like they belong, they have a voice, there is open communication, regardless of where they are in the org chart. I think back it was in June 2015, NBA Finals Game 4, you started Andre Dadala for the first time. And I believe there was a Wall Street Journal article about this, that a 28-year-old video assistant who was fairly junior on your staff came up with an analysis to prompt you to do that. Mm. Can you tell us more about kind of what that story was? I think there was a 3 a.m. text message also involved in there somewhere. Um, what, what, in, what enabled a junior staff member to have an impact which went on to make Andre the Finals MVP? Yeah, well, it's one of the one of the things I really learned from from Pop playing in San Antonio. He used to say all the time, "Anybody can can have a good idea. It doesn't matter where it comes from. Let's explore everything. And if if you know if one of you has a thought, um, bring it up." And he would say the same thing to all the coaches. And so it was very inclusive there. And I and I thought that was really powerful. And I wanted to to uh, create the same sort of culture. Here. And uh, so that was the way we operated. We sort of embraced all ideas. I, I encouraged everybody, all the coaches, to talk during during meetings, and if they had something to say, to try to get get it out of them. And mm -hmm. and same thing in the in the huddles. You know, take a time out, and you know we might see something as a coaching staff, and the players might feel differently. And um, so I'll, you know, sometimes I'll say in the timeout, "Hey, I'm thinking we should do this. You know, what do you guys think?" And usually it's Draymond who says, no, we should do something different. <laughs> and, and, uh, but Draymond's really smart, and he's the one who's out there. And so, you know, a lot of times, like, all right, you know, you, if you guys feel strongly about that, let's do that. Yeah. So I think, uh, but to, to do that, you have to, you have to be comfortable in your own skin. You have mm -hmm. to, to embrace a really, I think, a really crucial aspect of leadership, which is that you actually will come across stronger to the people you're leading if you show that you don't have all the answers, right? Mm -hmm. I think sometimes leaders feel like, oh my gosh, I've gotta, gotta have all the answers, otherwise they're not gonna respect me. I, I think it's sort of the opposite. As long as, as long as they know you're putting in the work and that you know what you're talking about, because what we're doing is, is more art than science. Mm -hmm. You know, this is, it's a basketball game, so there's no, perfect answer for anything. Um, so if you can you know, be collaborative and sometimes allow the players to make a decision or the video coordinator, or, <laughs> um, there shouldn't be any hesitation to do that as long as you don't blame that person if it doesn't work. You know, you gotta, you gotta own, own the decision afterwards and whatever it is um, and give credit if, it, if credit is due. And, but, but if you just do that, and it, and it comes naturally, and you feel comfortable with that, it's a really powerful force. Um, because then the players take ownership. Um, but doing that while maintaining your, um, your sense of, you know, you're the person in charge ultimately is kind of the balance that we're all looking for. Yeah, yeah I see a lot of similarities with what you said earlier about leadership, is giving that freedom, that rope, allowing them to feel like they're part of the process and they have ownership, and then actually being the decision maker with all the inputs yourself. Um, perhaps, you know, more specifically on people management, um, there was a situation, I believe, back in November 2018. Um, the Warriors were playing the Clippers down in LA, nationally televised game. There was a confrontation on television between Kevin Durant and Draymond Green, two of their superstars. When you had to deal with that situation, that confrontation, what learnings from your past experiences, you mentioned Popovich a couple of times and others, what did you lean on in that moment to diffuse that situation and 
move on from that situation, which was potentially a pretty difficult confrontation that I just uttered. Yeah, that one was a tough one. That's, um, I had never experienced anything like that, you know, where two players got into it, you know, in a, in a game like that. So mm -hmm. I think that's more instinct than anything. I think as a leader, as a coach, um, you have to have kind of non-negotiables. You have, the players need to know um, what's, what line can be crossed, what, what line can't be crossed, and um, just felt like that was um, too much. And Bob Myers and I you know, got together and handled it the way we thought was best. There was no easy answer, and, and um, you know, we, we just tried to do the best we could with it, but it was very, very difficult. And, and obviously when you're doing it you know, with the public staring at you and, and knowing everything that's at stake, not an easy position to be in, but um, it's going to happen. You know, right. when you're in in a leadership position, you're, there are very difficult decisions to make, and you just kind of have to do what you think is best. I think, and what's right. Yeah, yeah, and like you said, in, in your career over many decades, that was the first time you had even come across that. So there's always a curveball around the corner. There's always a first time for any situation. I'm sure you've learned a lot from that. What have you taken away, and kind of what stuck with you? going forward now to almost three years on, um, how has that incident and dealing with that net new scenario changed yeah. your, your opinion or style on people management? Well, how many people here are going to tweet about it if I answer it like with... Yeah, with, Just keep your hands down, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is part of modern life that's really right. difficult. You know, you, you, um, it's, it's harder and harder to, um, to live a public life and really open up and and share you know things that that happen because all of a sudden you know things come right back around and it, and so it's it's that that's one that was very um very difficult to deal with and obviously Draymond brought it up you know a couple months back and, and then it started all over again and so you know not my not my favorite uh topic uh, to discuss so uh great can we talk about the championships great that we yeah have? Let's talk about that. <laughs> um, just, and hopefully another one coming up next year um, in terms of championships, <laughs> yeah. but yeah. Good. yeah. Um, I want to dive into perhaps decision-making, Steve. And perhaps I want to go back to a couple of different scenarios and just if you could share with us your thought process or what you were, how you came to those conclusions, decisions, I think that would be helpful. The first one was fairly early on in your time at the Warriors. It was, I believe there was a potential trade for Kevin Love, who was just coming off a stellar year um, with Clay Thompson, who at the time was still fairly, uh, fairly young in his NBA career. I believe you were very much um, for Clay staying on the team and not having that trade, and of course, as they say, the rest is history. He's been an all-star and won three titles. What gave you conviction in that moment, um, backing and supporting a fairly unknown or unproven player versus more of a genuine kind of proven expert? I think that I've been in the NBA now in some capacity for 33 years. And, and one of the things I've learned is the, the only thing you can be sure of is what's already been proven on the court. Any time you, you decide to draft someone or trade for someone, if there's, if there's no history, if there's no proof that it's going to work, you're really taking a chance. And so when I became the Warriors coach, uh, the, the undisputed truth was that the Warriors had the fourth best defense in the league mm -hmm. with Clay Thompson yep. uh, guarding a lot of the point guards that are out there. And it had become a, a, a really pick and roll dominant game at that by that point now it's even more so and you've got clay and steph and from a basketball standpoint um you'd like to be able to protect steph because he's going to have to handle the ball so much maybe put clay on the point guard i mean they, and and it had already worked mm -hmm. and so our thinking was we know the warriors have a great defense already um so if we can improve the offense a little bit and we think we thought we could watching the tape we thought you know a lot of young guys who with some more seasoning could, could uh, generate you know, better shots. And it was all right there. Whereas you make a big deal, even, even if it's for a great player, you just don't know. And so um, 
I think in, in those cases, you, you're wise to stick with what you do know, if, if what you do know is really uh, positive, which right. it was. Right. And where, where did that, that uh, the training of that eye and that talent, that conviction come from? Was it just seeing Clay and Steph in the prior seasons and the shoot-arounds and the trainings? Or was there something else in your experiences that made you believe that, no, this, is, this can come to us, let's just give it some more time and actually see this come through? Yeah, these guys were pretty young um, mm -hmm. at, at the time and, and were already really proficient, really, um, you know, Steph was already an all-star. Clay hadn't been uh, one yet, but right. you could see the potential. And they were in the playoffs for two years. I mean, they, they, they were great. It was a great team. Um, you know, I, I inherited a team that was uh, that won 50 games that had been the playoffs the previous couple of years. Um, you know, the previous staff under Mark Jackson had done a great job establishing a defense. The Warriors hadn't had a defense in literally like 30 years. So, I mean, it was they were the team that just scored 125 points, and usually the other team scored 127, and that was kind of, you know, they were fun to watch, but they weren't going anywhere. And... So it was established under Mark that right. they were going to be a, become a great defensive team, and the front office did a really good job putting the pieces together. So when we got here, when my staff got here, it was like this is like this is real. We could you know we could win the whole thing, and um, that's why ultimately uh, you know, we we decided to to stay the course. And you know, Bob, it's it's always Bob's decision, and Bob was right with me in terms of seeing where we could go because we already had a really good start with uh, the momentum they had built the previous couple of years. Right. You mentioned inheriting the good team and you know, it was your first season as a head coach um, at the NBA level and you're, you, you win their first title in 40 years, I believe. The next year you win 73 regular season games, you break your own team 72-10 record of the Bulls. A lot of people here also potentially will you know, experience fairly rapid rises to success, almost overnight success. What, if anything, changes, Steve, in your approach to management and just to kind of how you approach your day-to-day -day at the job when you've now gone from, you know, a challenger to now at the top of that throne and to being that champion? Um, really nothing. Nothing changed. It was, I think, the routine of um, making sure we're staying locked in on the, the goals that we had, trying to improve on, this, on the you know, certain keys that we, were, uh, we thought would take us to the next step. And um, so, you know, the, the, I think the whole idea with anything is to, is to build uh, a, a culture, um, a, a, a kind of an atmosphere that the players are going to feel whether you're winning or you're losing. Um, and and the, the whole point is to help the players get better and help them have the best possible careers they can have. And so that, that's true whether you're winning championships or you, know, you have the worst record in the league. It's still, the, the goal still is the same thing. Right. So as long as you're generating that feeling in the gym each day, then you have to be comfortable with you know, the, the criticism that's going to come your way when you're right. losing right. Uh, because that's all... That's all part of it, and it's just um, part of the territory. Right. And how do you, you, know, how do you um, think about managing perhaps the, the pressure and kind of the magnifying glass that comes with being at that top? And you said the criticism, the blame. Mm. You, know, you, you mentioned nothing changes day to day, but as we go from you know, students into the post-graduation you know, real world, how do we think about using overnight success more tangibly and thinking about our next steps in a, in, in a way that um, in, in a way that perhaps we can we were previously not exposed to and you we were not at that top and not in that limelight well I think um, first of all I think life is more difficult now than it's ever been for all of us you know whether you're in a position of leadership or if you're a young person trying to figure out what you're going to do um, just the nature of life now with uh, the constant uh, criticism and judgment that we all have at, at our fingertips uh, that's so difficult to avoid. Uh, I know when I played, literally, if you wanted to avoid any of the chatter, you just didn't pick up the morning paper, mm. you know, and, and 
I had an, uh, an experience in Chicago. I was trying out for the Bulls and I had a non-guaranteed contract and I was just trying to make the team and I was playing great. And I decided to pick up the paper one day thinking, you know, maybe, maybe they're gonna say something nice about <laughs> me, you know? Like, pick it up and you can probably guess where the story's going. You know, the, the writer says, uh, well, the Bulls are gonna make cuts, you know, in the next couple of days and Steve Kerr's probably gonna get cut and so-and-so's probably gonna get cut. And I was crushed. I was like, what, what is he talking about? I'm playing so well. The next day at practice, I was terrible, you know? And, and so I think about that story sometimes because now it's like times a thousand for everybody, right? Um, right. Whether you're trying out for an NBA team or just trying to get through high school, right. you know? Um, hearing all the judgment and the criticism and it's brutal. It's, 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 uh, so how do you navigate that? How do you avoid that? And um, so finding balance, what, I, what I've found with our players is the guys who have the most balance in their life are the ones who handle all this stuff the best. Uh, Work-life balance is just crucial, you know. The days of, uh, you know, coaches sleeping in their office all night, you know, it, it, I mean, I, I, maybe, maybe there are still coaches out there doing it, um, probably in the NFL, I think that's, that's their, <laughs> you know, that's their thing, but it's just, insane. I think you, you have to have a life. You have to have balance. Steph is a great example. You know, he, he loves life. He loves his family. He loves playing golf. He loves, um, you know, being with his kids and, you know, being at home for dinner. And every day is a gift to him. And so he takes plenty of heat. He takes plenty of criticism, but he's able to manage it and navigate it. And, um, and we've had a lot of players who haven't been able to because their lives aren't as balanced. And so, you know, that, I guess that's my advice is to, to really seek balance of uh, that work-life work relationship, um, balance. The, the, and I, I find it through, um, I do a lot of yoga. Uh, I like to read. I find if I can get into a good book, I'm just kind of in a better frame of mind each day. And um, I like to cook. You know, just just cooking a, a a meal at home and follow. You know, I'm not a I'm not a chef, but if I can find a good recipe and just go buy the ingredients and cook and have a game on in the background and have a beer, like that's a great great day. You yeah. know, and that sounds fun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that helps me when you know when people say, "Why the hell doesn't Kerr run more pick and roll for Curry?" You know, I can I can just cook a meal and have a beer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that must be nice. Um. <laughs> But you, like you said, not all your players have that balance. You, know, you mentioned right. Steph, and he does that. How, what is your role as, as a head coach to, is it a nudge in the right direction? Um, is it more explicit than that? How, how do you, you want to kind of corral as many of your, of your roster towards yeah. that? Because you've clearly seen the benefits of that balance. Right. Um, how do you how do you do that? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that's uh, it's one area where perspective comes in. You know, uh, reminding players um, just how how fortunate we are, um, and you can do that in a variety of ways. Bringing in guest speakers, um, we've had we we're very lucky because people want to come speak to the Warriors. You know, and and uh, so we're we're able to to get a lot of really interesting people to come in, um, and we've had. Um, We've had like Michael Lewis came in, the author came in to speak to our team. We had uh, Dr. Dre and Jimmy Iovine came in and um, you know d d gave a presentation on their company on Beats. Um, we've had uh, Alicia Keys and she came in and talked about her process of of uh, you know writing a song and writing music. And uh, we've had uh, Tommy Smith, the sprinter from the 1968 Olympics, who held up his fist for uh, racial equality. Right. Uh, some incredible guests. And um, so trying to present something to the players that is not just, here's how we're guarding pick and roll. It's like, this is, this is, life. This yeah. is life, right? Yeah. And, and, um, and then beyond that, we try to get, offer them as much assistance as we can in terms of, you know, we have a mindfulness coach to help them with uh, meditation, with We'll do some of that as a team, and then there's, you know, they'll have private sessions where we try to help help people 
to, to get you know, comfortable um, learning how to perform under all this, this uh, judgment we all live under. Right, yeah. And perhaps it's this judgment. Um, sometimes I see a double standard for the athletes and the people under that spotlight versus the rest of us who are you know, more of an office nine to five job. For example, a lot of tech companies during the Bay Area have unlimited paid time off. Um, we have unlimited rotation days and so on. When, let's say, LeBron James does it, it's, it's called load management. If he misses a prime time mm -hmm. game, people are upset. Their television rights and the sponsors and so on. Is that fair? Is that, a, is, that a, is that a double standard that we have as a society between our athletes and everyone else? Yeah, but that's part of the deal. You know, we try to talk to our team every year about what the NBA is about. You know, when, you, when you're playing in the NBA, um, you're going to get booed, you're going to get criticized, you're going to get injured, you're going to get cut, you're going to get traded. Um, but if you can navigate it well, it's an amazing job and you're going to make a lot of money and you're going to have some great experiences and you get to play basketball for a living and this is the trade-off. So you got to understand that right away. Right. Um, I once had, I won't name this teammate, but when I was late in my career, I was, um, I was playing for the Blazers and um, one of our rookies on that team would sit with me and another veteran player, a guy named Chris Dudley. And the coach, Maurice Cheeks was the coach. I think he wanted this rookie to sit, sit with us and uh, so we could share our wisdom. We were both you know, <laughs> getting ready to retire. We'd been in the league a long time. And this player, first week of the season, he, he says, um, and he's you know, exhausted. It's been a month of training camp and games, and you know, we're maybe, maybe a month into the season. He says, um, hey, guys, I have a question. So what's that? And he says, how much time do we get off for Christmas? <laughs> <laughs> Chris and I kind of looked at each other and were like, oh boy, this is going to be a long He has a lot year. to learn. Um, <laughs> we don't have any time off for Christmas. And he, he was, you know, you could see he was heartbroken. He said, we don't get any time off at all. And uh, he's like, no, you know, and, and it turned out the coach actually made him go home for a couple of days. He was so homesick, you know, and, and uh, but you kind of have to know what you're getting into. And, and the, one of the problems right now with the league, it's not a, it's not a problem, it's, one, it's more of an issue mm -hmm. is that players are coming in at a younger and younger age. Um, we just drafted two guys in the lottery who are uh, 19, you know, they each spent one year after high school, mm -hmm. and here they are. And, you know, 25 years ago, it was, you know, guys like Tim Duncan and Patrick right. Ewing were mm -hmm. playing four years in college and right. doing what you do in college, you know, growing <laughs> up. And, right. Uh, so to have to grow up in the NBA at 19 uh, and not really knowing anything is very difficult. So we've got to try to do the best we can. Right. Um, I want to move on to perhaps um, some of the work you did last year while the world was in lockdown. Um, you had a, a podcast called Flying Coach, I believe, with Pete Carroll. Mm -hmm. And there was a specific episode, um, I believe that was June early June when you had Brett Popovich as a guest, and this was right after the George Floyd murders. And you described um, you know, your, your thoughts on that issue. You described how a, a player of yours, um, I believe Andre Dadala, had to tell you about the Tulsa riots, mm -hmm. despite you having been a student of American history mm -hmm. in both high school and college. Mm -hmm. And I think the words used uh, to describe the moment was an absence of leadership in our nation, there's a disease. This is very much um, a issue with, you know, specifically the white population. About a year and a half on, Steve, what are your thoughts on those topics today? How have you changed? How have you improved, if at all? Yeah, it's so hard because we're being held back by the, the incredible division that exists, the political division that exists. You know, what, what Andre uh, asked me, you know, he, he said, have you ever, did you ever hear of the Tulsa race riots? I said, I said, no, this was a year and a half ago. Since that time, a lot has come out. There's, there's been documentaries, mm -hmm. but my point at the time was I took you know, several years of American history and never heard one word about that. You know, our, our curriculum in high school and college when it came to uh, African-American history was mainly 
you know, Jackie Robinson and, and Martin Luther King and, and these figures who we celebrated um, for good reason. But we didn't flip it around. We, didn't, we never said, okay, why, why was it that Jackie Robinson wasn't allowed to play in the big leagues? Why weren't black people allowed to play in the big leagues before that? Mm -hmm. we, didn't, we didn't ever really explore right. that in school, right? And, and so now you, you know, there's this movement a year ago, and I think everybody um, who's involved in this movement, the, the whole point is we need to reconcile some of our sins, right? Our original sin, especially. We need to, to, to examine, we can't just ignore it, which is what we've done, because you, you see how it's manifested it's, itself in so many ways. Mm -hmm. George Floyd's murder being, you know, an, an easy example and a terrible example. Um, but I think the, the point is, what's happened now is, so you immediately get this, uh, this, this conversation on critical race theory, which is just nothing more than a fancy way of saying, hey, let's teach real American, African-American history to our kids. And is, it seems so simple, right? It's like, yeah, yeah that, that would be really good because then maybe kids could grow up and learn um, that you know, racism is, is, is really bad and teach them at a very young age, right? Because it's clearly something that is sort of yeah. taught. And yet all of a sudden that become, you know, the argument is, well, we don't want to teach our kids that they're bad and they're, they're bad people. Like nobody, nobody's suggesting that. But this is how every issue that we have in this country now becomes. It just, it's like this and it's all for political gain and um, it's, it's really demoralizing. Um, and, it's, and it's, you know, just another example of how we're, we're sort of flailing right now as a country in, in, in yeah. trying to, you know, get our shit together. Yeah, unfortunately. I mean, while the politics of it play a massive role and would make all of our lives, you know, a lot easier, what can we as individuals perhaps, you know, do on, our, on an individual level in yeah. our communities with the people around us? Yeah. I mean, I know you've, you shared a little bit about this earlier, but can you tell us more about how you've had perhaps those uncomfortable conversations um, with your team, with your family and your community? Well, I think... Um I think number one, we, we, we need to educate ourselves the best we can, whether that's um, you know through our own reading or or you know just extending ourselves and 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 um, in a in a way that we haven't done before. Uh, you know, Brian Stevenson is another incredible guest speaker we had, the civil rights lawyer, and he talks about proximity and 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 he said proximity is so important. And we asked him, what do you mean by proximity? He said, well, proximity to the people that you're trying to help, right? Um, boots on the ground. You know, if you, if you really want to make an impact, um, actually being proximate to um, people you're, you're, you're trying to help, mm -hmm. being in the community in some form of uh, grassroots organization, um, movement, can, what can you do that actually is going to uh, not just make an impact, but you know, make you feel it, make you feel what's actually happening? And I think that's what the NBA has really tried to do. Every, every um, team now is connected with a local grassroots organization that is trying to uh, improve um, the lives of, of people in the inner city and, and trying to, to, to do positive things in terms of, of racial relations. And so I, th I think that's, that's the challenge is how do we actually feel it and be proximate to, yeah. to it. I love that. I've, I've not heard that analogy with proximity before, but yeah. I think being present and as close to the source of it mm -hmm. um, definitely makes a difference. Just stepping back, Steve, you know, the George Floyd murder and racial injustice was just one issue of many injustices that are happening around the world. And you know, some are captured by the media, some are not. How do you as a leader and as a person with a platform decide when to speak up on an issue and an, an injustice versus whether to not do so? And we too will you know, most likely be in those situations in the business world where yeah. there's a lot happening out there with our employees, our staff, our community. 
what's the framework we can use? How can we think about what do, when do we yeah. lean in? When do we, when do we not? No, it's a great question. I think what I've realized is to, to narrow down my focus to the things that I'm really uh, passionate about and informed about. It's really difficult to, to go down the path of, you know, hey, I'm, I want to be an activist and start talking about something you really don't know a whole lot about. Those, are, those issues are better to, to sit out. And so for me, the, the issues that I'm most interested in that have really been the biggest uh, dynamics in my own life are gun violence and racial equality. Uh, I lost my dad to gun violence when, when I was 18. He was 52. And uh, so gun violence is something that is, is, um, that affects me deeply and my family. And so I've spent a lot of time um, with a lot of the different uh, gun violence groups, uh, gun preve violence prevention groups, whether it's Sandy Hook or the Brady Foundation or Giffords, um, March for Our Lives. I've, I've done fundraising, but I've, I've also learned a lot. And so I feel much more comfortable speaking out about those things. Um, and then the racial justice, it's just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm living every day with a group of people whose lives are directly impacted and whose families are directly impacted by the injustice that exists. And so it's really easy for me to, to feel um, passionate and, and connected to those things. Yeah. It sounds like it's, it's always going to be a personal choice, but using the idea of being informed and educated on those topics is a good starting way of deciding when to, when to lean into those issues. Yeah, I mean, and that's, uh, I think that's sort of personal choice too. I mean, I, I've been pretty um, passionate about those issues for a long time, but I just leaned into them maybe five, six years mm -hmm. ago. I think um, I've told this story before, but we, I, I think it might have been the 2000. 16 finals, um, maybe it was the conference finals, but we had uh, our third moment of silence in as many weeks. Um, this was the Pulse nightclub uh, massacre. Orlando. Yeah, in Orlando. And we, we were, you know, we were having this huge game and we have a, yet another moment of silence. And uh, it's like, so we, what, are we just gonna keep, keep doing this? We're just, yeah. you know, like it's great, let's honor. Yeah. The, the, the victims and their families, but maybe we should, you know, excuse my language, maybe we should effing do something about it, right? Yep, and and it's just, yeah. it's infuriating. It's infuri And I finally just had enough, and I decided just sort of, apropos of nothing, I was doing a podcast, a local podcast with Tim Kawakami um, mm -hmm. and, he, and about basketball, and I just, I brought it up and took a lot of, a lot of heat for it um, from, you know, gun rights, activists and and learned a lot and uh but it was good it was it felt good and it and it sort of got my you know i dove in and and i started to get my bearings and started to realize where i could actually make an impact yeah thanks for sharing that i did not know about that 2016 mm. finals uh, and the podcast so that was inspiring before we open it up to q a i wanted to ask a question which we plan to ask all of our speakers this year for view from the top our theme, Steve, is beyond expectations. Um, you've certainly, in the sh stories you've shared right now, you know, gone beyond the expectations set forth by, you, by society for a NBA player, a GM, a head coach. If you were to perhaps just summarize what inspires you, what motivates you to go beyond just those expectations, what would you say? I think what I love about coaching and what uh, inspires me is this feeling of generating joy and happiness as a group. Um, it's, it, just, it gives me chills just thinking about a team that's connected and playing well and laughing. I'm really excited about this year. We had our first exhibition game last night. Mm -hmm. And you know this, Tara, but you know, sometimes you just feel it and sometimes you don't. Like, and, Last night, I'm watching our game, and I just had chills. Like, this group is connected. Nice. Like, we're, we're going to have a really fun season. And that's what keeps me coming to work every day and, and wanting to, to really succeed is um, 
that feeling of momentum when something, when you, when you, you just grasp something and you can feel it and it starts to grow and you're just trying to feed it and so many people are interested in it mm-hmm. and, and enjoying it as well. And so when our team plays well and the community gets involved and all of a sudden everybody's excited, um, that's the best feeling there is for me. That's great. And as a Warriors fan, you're getting chills on the first preseason, James, that is, is exciting. It bodes well for the rest <laughs> of our season, and um, I'm excited for that. Great, let's open it up to questions. Um, I think we have the first one right over there. If you could just introduce yourself, please. Hey, Steven. First of all, thank you very much for being with us tonight. I'm Santiago Patarca, class of 2023. I'm like Manu Ginoglia, I'm from Argentina. Um, I wanted to travel back in time to 1997, game six against the Utah Jazz of Carl Malone and John Stockton. <laughs> uh, you call a timeout, 25 seconds left on the clock. What were you thinking? How did you manage? <laughs> How did you manage to convince just <laughs> Michael Jordan? Uh, when you went into the huddle, you looked him in the eyes and shouted, if you need it, if he comes up, I will be ready. <laughs> you must I, have heard I, this I planted this question. Yeah. <laughs> well, you just told the story, so that was uh, yeah. That, that was the that was the moment that every kid dreams of, you know, when you're shooting in your driveway or at you know at school or whatever, and you count down the seconds and NBA championship on the line and, and um, so to, to actually live that was um, incredible. Um, when you're a kid, when you miss, you just pretend that you got fouled and now you go to the free throw line and you shoot two <laughs> free throws. And, um, but when it's happening, you know, you, don't, you, you can't quite have that luxury. Um, but it was, a, it was a, a moment that I think, um, it took me a long time to get to the point where I could, uh, actually succeed in a situation like that. I was very self-conscious when I started playing um, in the NBA and I didn't really feel clutch. You know, I felt like I was thinking too much. And so I learned a lot, especially from Michael Jordan, who took game-winning shots almost every you know week and missed plenty of them and um, <laughs> didn't seem to bother him that much, you know. And, and uh, there was a great lesson in there that you got to go for it. And you got to be able to live with the failure if you don't. But but the the best way to succeed is without considering the failure. Without you know just just playing, just going, and and you know getting getting out of your own head. And so that was a moment for me that was probably years in the making. And uh, so obviously a great great moment and something I'll I'll have forever. Next question. Get one back there. Steve, thanks so much for speaking with us today. Uh, my name is Tejas. I'm a first-year MBA student here. Uh, and my question today is about building championship culture. This is tough for me to say as a lifelong Cleveland Cavaliers fan, but if you could take <laughs> us back to 2015, uh, what were your top uh, priorities and values that you sought to instill in the organization? And who did you work with and lean on to help build these values and priorities? Yeah, uh, thank you for the question. And uh, congratulations on the 2016 championship. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when I, when I became a coach, I, I, I spent a lot of time preparing to coach, um, but I didn't become a coach until I was 49. So I, had, uh, I did some television work after I was done playing, and I spent a lot of time preparing. And I talked to a lot of coaches. And one of the guys who uh, really made an impact on me was Pete Carroll. And I went to see Pete in Seattle. I loved the way his teams played. Uh, and, I, and I sat down with him, and Pete just said, uh, after we had spent a couple of days together and I was watching, you know, watching practice, and he, he, we sat down in his office, and he said, so how are you going to coach your team? I said, you mean, like, what offense are we going to run? He said, no, that stuff doesn't even matter. Like, you know, and I, I had just spent, like, a year trying to figure out what our offense was going to look like, you know. <laughs> He said, "Really, you know, you'll, that stuff you'll figure out." He said, "It's the, you know, what, what's it going to feel like for the coaches, for the players, and the coaches to come into the gym every day and 
What's your culture going to be like? And, and I suppose I had never really thought of it in those terms, but I, you know, I knew playing for Phil and Pop, they, they had built these amazing cultures. But Pete really sort of clarified, you know, and, and he told me the story of how he sort of figured out how to incorporate a culture. And he, he asked me to, to, to go home and think of the four values that, that were the most important values in my life. And that my job as a coach was, once I figured out what those values were, was to make those values come alive every day. And that the players would feel that authenticity since they were my values. And, and so that was, Pete was the guy who sort of you know, like laid it out there. And it was really fascinating. Um, joy and competition were, were two of them. Mindfulness uh, was another one. Um, we, everything that we did um, was built on, on competing and joy and, and mindfulness and compassion was the fourth one. Um, so everything we did and the way we treated the team was based on those values. We, we incorporated a ton of joy into our practice sessions. We competed at everything. We kept score of everything. We treated our players with great compassion. But making those values come alive um, to me was the, the lesson of this is, this is what it means to, to build a culture. Hi. Um, this is Diego Ramirez, uh, NBA 23 from Mexico. So my question is regarding how you experience different joys as a player and as a coach. I practice the sport competitively, and one of my greatest fears has been retirement because I feel that it is a great part of my identity that I'm going to lose. What has been your favorite part of coaching, and how do you compare the feeling of winning a championship as a player and as a coach? Yeah, a great question. I, I think as a, uh, as a player, you're very uh, locked in on your own, uh, your own game, your own routine. And as a coach, you're thinking about everybody else, and, and uh, you're trying to help everyone. So actually, I found winning the championship as a coach was even more gratifying than, than as a player because, you, because you've put in all this energy into the whole group and you see everyone, how happy everyone in the organization is. And when you're a player, it's an amazing feeling too, especially with your teammates, um, but it's more, it's, it's more insular. It's more, you know, you're, you're just locked in on your own routine day after day. And uh, coaching is, you know, you feel responsible for everyone. That's great. Um, thanks for answering those, Steve. We are, we're almost done. Um, before we let you go, we want to do a quick lightning round. Okay. Um, I'll mention a couple of words or phrases and just you pick one of them. Ready? Yep. Okay. Um, Space Jam 1 or Space Jam 2? <laughs> 1. 1. Okay, so does that mean Jordan over LeBron or is that not a... <laughs> Just an indictment on their acting, not their not the oh, best players, okay. just as actors. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't see Space Jam too, so. Ooh, okay. So <laughs> there we go. Um, Messi or Ronaldo? Ooh, uh, Messi. Messi. There's my there's my Argentinian guy right there. There you go. What's your team? What's your what's Liverpool? Your, Liverpool. Liverpool. Yeah. See, you have some Liverpool in here as well. Um, Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal, Novak Djokovic. Uh, Roger Federer. Roger Federer, okay. <laughs> Proud teaser. Better dressed team, 1996 Bulls or 2017 Warriors? Uh, do coaches count? <laughs> so you were a player on one, not yeah. a coach on the other. 27, 2017 Warriors, because yeah. I was a player on the 96 <laughs> Bulls, and I brought the level you down. You brought them down. Yeah. That's fair. Um, <laughs> best city for food in the NBA? Ooh. Um, Chicago. Chicago. Great. Um, and last one. Losing Game 7 of the NBA Finals to LeBron James at home, on Father's Day, or getting punched in the face by Michael Jordan. <laughs> wow. That's, uh, that's quite a way to finish tonight. <laughs> really uplifting there. Yeah, thank you. <laughs>
Anyway, I, uh, I don't know if you know this, but I um, actually yep. went at yep. Michael, and I, I, I actually hit him in the fist with my jaw. Right. <laughs> we have an answer. That's an answer. That's an answer. <laughs> Great. I think that was a winner. Um, but that was a lot of fun. I get an ovation for getting punched. That's a really, <laughs> I'm, not try, I'm, not, I'm not sure I understand, but we'll go with it. Um, thanks for your time. We, I think we learned a lot. Um, we really appreciate this, Steve. I think you've left us with lessons on mindfulness, on authenticity, on proximity that I think we all can take with us as we graduate and move on from the GSB. I want to wish you, your family, the team, um, good best of health and good luck for the season and go Warriors. Right, thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to View from the Top, the podcast, a production of Stanford Graduate School of Business. This interview is conducted by me, Rustam Birdi of the MBA class of 2022. Lily Sloan composed our theme music and Michael Riley and Jenny Luna produced this episode. You can find more episodes of this podcast at our website, www.gsb.stanford.edu.